This is Macro Horizons, episode 82, Autumn Angst, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of August 17th. And as late August arrives, and binge-watching staycations are all the rage, we're reminded that COVID-15 ain't gonna gain itself. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market made an attempt to break out in favor of higher yields. At one point, 10-year yields, after trading at effectively 50 basis points, got as high as 73 basis points earlier this week. Now, that was an impressive move, particularly as it came with higher-than-expected CPI, higher-than-expected core CPI, as well as a drop in unemployment claims and a pretty solid overall read on consumption via the retail sales report. In addition to the incrementally improving fundamentals, there was obviously the refunding auctions, most notable being the $38 billion in 10 years and the $26 billion in 30 years. Recall those auctions were larger than initially expected, although that announcement was made and to some degree priced into the market the week before. A classic auction concession can account for part of the backup in rates, and as we look at the week ahead, it will be key to see exactly how sustainable higher rates are in an environment where the auctions have passed, with the caveat of the upcoming 20-year. Keep in mind the 20-year at $25 billion is also larger than was expected. We remain in a pivotal point for the economic data in part because the incoming releases do not fully reflect the spike in COVID-19 cases that occurred in July and August, and in part because of all of the uncertainties associated with the outlook as the fall approaches. A great deal of the Fed and Washington's programs were designed to effectively bridge the gap between the point in which the lockdowns took place in mid-March, early April, and the emergence on the other side. Now, we haven't fully emerged, and with reopenings paused and a great deal of uncertainty surrounding the start of the school year, we expect that investors' outlook will continue to be constrained by the realities of what is fair to characterize as relatively incomplete data. For context, we did lose 25 million jobs. We've regained 10 million of those on net. So since the month of February, payrolls are down 15 million. 
even if we were to see a solid one to two million print for NFP every month between now and the end of the year, there's no reason to expect that that would be associated with wage gains or realized inflation pressures. In fact, the spike in inflation that we saw in the week just past speaks to the base effects and some of the idiosyncratic pockets of inflation that are tied to shifting demand characteristics of consumption in this mid-pandemic period. So guys, it was a bearish week in treasuries, no doubt about that. But are we thinking more related to another record large refunding? Or was it really a data story? I mean, the fundamentals were pretty solid. So the answer to that question, Ben, is yes. We have both the economic data that supported the sell-off, as well as a classic auction concession coupled with a technical retracement into a range that has been in place for a very long time. Now the question becomes, and we won't really have resolution to this for at least a few trading sessions, and that is what happens after the supply is absorbed? We go through the weekend. Do we find ourselves with 10-year yields back below 65 basis points? If that's the case, then it just was a supply event. If, on the flip side, we face the second half of August with 10s between 65 and 70 basis points, I think at that stage, we would be comfortable with the conclusion that the combination of higher than expected core CPI, a below 1 million print for initial jobless claims, as well as a strong start for consumption in the third quarter, have conspired to improve the overall economic outlook. I think one complicating factor in terms of just looking at the first couple days of next week is we do get 20-year supply as well. So even if rates aren't drifting lower, you could see a segment of the market saying, oh, there was a larger than expected increase in 20-year auction sizes. This is keeping upward pressure on the back end of the curve. I'm a little skeptical that that isolated pressure on 20s would feed through dramatically into 10s and 30s, say, but I wouldn't be surprised to see 20s underperform versus 10s and 30s, a position which could be expressed in some form of a butterfly trade. And that with the background of ongoing uncertainty related to the next round of stimulus from Washington, and of course, the political unknowns as the election nears. So I think it's safe to say when combined with the constructive seasonals between now and the middle of September, any significant backup in 10-year yields will be met with buying. Although once we emerge on the other side of Labor Day, I think that we'll be due for a more significant collective rethink of the path for rates. Have you guys been surprised by the lack of discernible market impact of the lack of success in negotiating a new fiscal package? From my perspective, it seemed to me that the market had been assuming some form of a next round of stimulus was coming. Perhaps the assumption is that the latest toss-up between the different factions just delays the process. Or do you think that it's possible we really won't get another round of fiscal stimulus? 
I think that the market is still assuming that something comes out of Washington. Although, to your point, and I think it's a very good one, John, the longer the process takes, the lower expectations become. And there will be a stage at which it's simply a mood issue. Now, I'm starting to become increasingly concerned that the transition to the new normal is taking longer than certainly I expected at the beginning of the pandemic. When everything hit, I would have assumed that post-Labor Day, we would find ourselves functioning in an economy that was largely opened with a new set of rules. What appears to be happening is that a series of delays linked with the summer increase in COVID-19 cases has health officials a lot more cautious of what we might see in terms of the risk of a real second wave during the fall. And it's with that context that I think the lack of stimulus is particularly notable especially as a lot of the initial programs, which were designed to bridge the gap for firms and employees during the period of lockdown, begin to expire. And I think that that's a big risk as we think about the rest of the year. Yeah, Ian, you took the words right out of my mouth. The fact that we're reaching this confluence of events with faltering progress in Congress, some of the original fiscal measures running out, and also the prospect of a more material resurgence in the virus in some of the first hit areas like the Northeast holds the potential to create a sort of perfect storm, unfortunately, especially given the weather-dependent nature of some of these guidelines. Firms whose revenues who have already been severely impacted and are able to do some business purely by virtue of the nicer weather could face real issues as September turns to October all with the backdrop of obviously political uncertainty and exactly as you say, what appears to be a quickly lowering bar for what the next form fiscal stimulus will take, which ultimately gets back to the beginning of the conversation. And that is that the point at which we'll see buying interest in treasuries presumably moves lower in yield as well. In what has become one of the fixtures of trading the pandemic, the equity market seems to be ignoring all the risks between now and the end of the year as we see the S&P 500 within striking distance of setting new record highs. Now, I've heard an argument, and it's a reasonable technical one, that this summer's price action risks a double top in stocks as we transition into the fall and the realities that a series of firms have been put effectively on life support with the notion of making it through the worst of the lockdowns aren't necessarily going to be able to come out in the type of shape that you would expect them to if they're going to continue to be going concerns or a mass capitulation on the part of employers shedding jobs to right size to the new realities of their commerce environment. Yeah, I think it makes sense. If you go back a few months, we had this huge drop in aggregate demand as the economy shut down. Okay, well, the Fed and fiscal stimulus helped offset that aggregate demand. What I'm really skeptical about is that the offset was so flawless as to reprice equities to the same level they were at back in February. Instead, what I think could be very, very powerful is the psychological draw of moving back to that pre-COVID world. What I'm going to be extremely curious to watch is it's not obvious that if and when stocks set new highs, that they immediately fall back down. One could imagine that feat alone starts to extend confidence in the Fed's ability to push up asset prices in order to stabilize the economy. 
I guess where I'm going with all of this is that stocks have looked expensive compared to the macro risk outlook for weeks and weeks now, and yet continue to grind higher. Eventually, that narrative is going to shift. You can't deviate from some fundamentals for that long. But I've certainly been impressed with risk assets resilience. And let us not forget that with everything going on, the Fed is still buying $120 billion a month in QE and has committed to keeping rates at zero for the forecast horizon. And on top of that, has indicated they probably will need to do more. Really hard to push back too much against risk assets in that type of environment. Well, we're also coming up against a pretty pivotal time for the Fed itself. And by that, I mean the September FOMC meeting, where the consensus expectation is for a transition of the framework and a move to harder, more specific targets for forward guidance. John, what are your thoughts as we approach the Fed? I think one thing that's extremely likely is that the Fed will pivot to an outcome-dependent forward guidance. Now, the details of this are still a little bit fuzzy, whether that outcome will be in inflation terms or in unemployment terms, but I would offer a couple nuances. One, you only want to pivot to an unemployment-based outcome if you have a strong sense of where inflation starts to drift sharply higher with unemployment below a certain level. We don't have that. The reality is, over the past 10 years, Fed officials have been consistently surprised at how low unemployment can get without driving up inflation. Play that logic forward. Well, it makes sense that you don't really want the outcome that would start to signal a normalization in rates to be dependent on an unemployment rate. Instead, you probably want it to be on inflation itself. So they would do something where we're not going to hike rates until core PCE is 2% or higher for three consecutive months, something like that. The other thing that I guess I would offer is we still haven't had clarity around how the committee's thinking about yield curve control. This is something that's been lingering in the background for quite some time, and the probability of that being priced in has actually led to it kind of being implemented already. We've seen record low five-year yields below the top of the Fed's target range. What I'm going to be curious about is, does the Fed feel the need to implement both of these? In other words, is the outcome-based forward guidance by itself sufficient to keep rates lower for longer, or do they feel like the outcome-based is insufficient, lacks credibility, and they need to layer on with actual purchases forcing the shape of the curve to be basically flat to three, five years, whatever they desire? Yeah, I would suspect that it does become a sequencing problem for the Fed. Obviously, they need to change the framework to add any relevance to the forward guidance, even with a hard target, particularly, as you point out, John, on the inflation side. And then why not keep yield curve control as a potential in 2021 if the economy performs even worse than they're expecting it to. So I'm very sympathetic to the argument that given where we are in the pandemic and all of the unknowns and uncertainties over the next few quarters, that the Fed would be well served to keep some potential policy action in reserve. And I completely agree with both of you that given where yields are right now, the urgency of yield curve control is lessened substantially. And there's also an argument that I've heard made that we're reaching a point at which QE has pushed real yields so low 
that the incremental value and further declines from expanded treasury purchases may not actually be worth it. So from that perspective, at least in my mind, the other potential lever that the FOMC could pull would be expanded corporate bond buying, bringing along with it all the ramifications we've discussed about encouraging investors to move further out the credit curve and generally keeping financial conditions easier for longer. Well, there's also a political aspect of pushing further into the credit market while simultaneously implementing a yield curve control or within a reasonably comparable period. And the logic here, bear with me, this is derived from a client question that I received earlier this week, implies that yield curve control takes away some of the balance sheet expanding nature of QE. So if the Fed says, for example, that they want two-year yields to be capped at 20 basis points, sure, the market will require them to defend that a few times. But eventually, once it becomes very clear that they will stand behind that level and buy whatever is needed, the actual cost of that operation will lessen over time and the balance sheet should expand at a slower pace, reallocating that balance sheet to a different market, corporates being an obvious example, intuitively makes sense. And then when Powell goes back to Congress and faces questions about the balance sheet, it will be a much easier sell. Again, we're not at the point where Congress is going to push back against the Fed's efforts, regardless of what it's doing to the balance sheet. But that certainly is something that they have to have in the back of their mind as they look at 2021 and beyond. Yeah, and I think there's also a nice flip side to that logic. One could imagine they implement yield curve control and the growth of the balance sheet starts to slow dramatically. I could very easily see a segment of investors say, oh, the Fed is tapering. The Fed is being less accommodative. This is bad for financial conditions, bad for risk assets. Whereas in reality, rates are still staying extremely low and it's the rate valuation that's the most important. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if excess reserves are $4 trillion or $4.05 trillion. You can lose a little bit and still have the same impact on the shape of the curve. But you have a lot of people who are going to focus on the slowing of the speed in purchases, and it runs the risk that some investors interpret that as the Fed not providing accommodation, whereas in reality, they actually would be arguably providing more by repressing front-end rates to a specific zone. So what you're saying is, What's a few trillion between friends? Or at least frenemies. Thanks, Regina George. I, I don't know who that is. You go, Glenn Coco. In the week ahead, the Treasury market has very little on the fundamental side to help provide incremental trading direction. We do see the Empire State Manufacturing Survey for the month of August, as well as building permits and housing starts. On the supply side, there is Wednesday's 20-year auction. $25 billion is a bit more than the market had originally anticipated, so there's a potential to see that sector underperform versus 10s and 30s, although we're skeptical that we'll see a wholesale repricing toward higher rates simply as a function of this last installment of long-end supply. Let us not forget the relevance of initial jobless claims during this period. The upcoming week contains the initial jobless claims print for non-farm payroll survey week, and while the most recent number was below 1 million, still solidly above 900,000 jobs, it dwarfs any of the pre-pandemic initial jobless claims highs. 
So for further context, as we move into the autumn months, we'll be watching the unemployment rate, we will be watching the pace, and we will be attempting to gauge the pace of rehiring versus the risk that the fallout from the pandemic has moved beyond the service sector, either into other sectors or further up the management chain. All of this is occurring on the backdrop of still very lofty risk asset valuations with the S&P 500 close to its all-time record high, and frankly, what can best be characterized as an uncertain outlook for another round of fiscal stimulus coming out of Washington, D.C. The Fed remains poised to do more if necessary, and as we've noted, we expect that we will get more clarity on the potential for Fed action at the September meeting. Overall, the economic data that we've seen for the month of July does suggest that the third quarter will be reasonable in terms of economic growth, although by no means a true V-shaped recovery, certainly not in the traditional sense. So in that context, we expect that while 10-year yields could see some upward pressure over the course of the next several weeks, the fact of the matter is that Treasury yields will be in a range for the foreseeable future, so going forward, the objective will be to simply time the extremes of those ranges. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with movie theaters now attempting to fill seats with tickets for just 15 cents, may we suggest 15 cent tickets, $15 popcorn, and 15 days in quarantine. Just a thought. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. 
This podcast does not be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.